Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 John chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. This is our Doubts and Answers teaching series. Tough question this morning. Maybe not so much for you, but for our world, it seems. Is Jesus the only way? Is Jesus the only way? What troubles people most about Christianity is its exclusiveness, its exclusivity. And uh, because we say that Jesus is the only way, those of us that follow him and are Christians, the world thinks that we are intolerant, ignorant, and arrogant. Here's my logic, kind of building on the last few weeks as we've been uh, walking through this series, the logic of today's message and uh, this whole idea of answering the question, is Jesus the only way? If Jesus was raised from the dead, we talked about that, gave you evidence for that. I believe he was raised from the dead. If Jesus was raised from the dead and the scriptures reporting it are undeniably reliable, talked about that last week, then Jesus' claim as the only way to God, he claimed that. There's, one, there's many verses where he claimed that, but one in particular that's really popular, John 14, 6. You guys remember it? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So that was Jesus. So if Jesus was raised from the dead, scriptures reporting it are undeniably reliable, then Jesus' claim as the only way to God, John 14, 6, is not a claim that Christians make out of intolerance, ignorance, or arrogance, but from objective evidence. Objective evidence. Christians believe that Jesus is the only way, not, not from arrogance, but objective evidence that Jesus said it. We say that because Jesus said it. And then he validated it. He backed it up. And that's why uh, C.S. Lewis said, when you seriously consider the claims Jesus made, he is either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. He is the Son of God. No one ever walked away from Jesus saying, oh, that was really a nice talk, Jesus. They were either really angry at him and thought he was crazy or they, um, or they bowed down and worshipped him. It's one or the other. None, none of this apathy that we see oftentimes in American Christianity. Um, he's way too controversial for any of that. And so we're going to dive right into the controversy this morning. I'm going to make your brain hurt. Okay, you guys ready for that? Okay, we're going we're gonna to have to do some thinking because this is kind of where we're going uh, our text this morning is going to teach us how to test the spirits. And uh, we're going to look at that. What does it mean to test the spirits? And then we're going to also uh, really begin to understand two big ideas. By this, you know the Spirit of God. So we're going to be able to distinguish what is the Spirit of God. So we're going to learn how to test the spirits, so we're going to be able to distinguish the Spirit of God. And that's really important for you because oftentimes I've had people come to me and say, Hey, I'm spiritual. And I always want to say, uh, What spirit? Because just because you're spiritual doesn't mean you're tapping into the right, uh, the right spirit. There's, there's a lot of different spirits, as you will see and as we will talk about in our society today. So you need to be able to make that distinction. It's called discernment. The Bible gives us uh, some great insight on that. And uh, so, hey, that's where we're headed. And would you bow your heads with me? And we'll pray before we head into our text this morning. Father God, there is nothing we enjoy more than spending time with you. 
In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Your love is better than anything in this world and in this life. We thank you. We thank you for your love. God, we just, we want to reflect on your love and just enjoy your love this morning. We pray, God, that you would speak to us through your word. Your word warns us in 1 Timothy 4.1 that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Teach us to test the spirits and to know your spirit, Father. Help us to discern your voice more clearly so that we can follow you more wholeheartedly for your glory and our infinite and eternal joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this text. Now, I had some, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we found out we were going to go through this teaching series on uh, doubts and answers, I had some parents come up to me and say, hey, this would probably be really a good one for our high school students to be in on. And so I went and talked to Ryan, our youth pastor. He said, you know what? I was planning on that. He said, that in fact, I'd like to teach that. And oftentimes they'll teach the same things that we're teaching in here. But he said, I'd like to have our high school students in, in this service with us. So we've got high school students in here. Good to have you with us once again. Um, but uh, it's, the reason for this is because 80% of our high school students that are raised in a Christian home defect from the faith when they get into the universities and colleges. And it's not because of, and we're going to talk about it in a a few minutes here, it's not because of defensible arguments, but because of dogmatic assertions, typically in an atmosphere of of sneering. And so we're going to learn the difference between the two, and they're they're intimidated. and, And so that's why it's important to know, not only know what you believe, but know why you believe what you believe. Because if you don't, uh, If you take for granted the why, you'll drift from the what. If you're slack in the the why, why you believe, you don't have a good solid foundation of why you believe what you believe, then when critics come along, they're going to devastate you. When crisis comes into your life, you're going to have good solid foundation for your beliefs. And so you need to know the the what, what you believe, but you need to know why you believe what you believe to give you that rock-solid foundation. And so, let me read the text. It's, it's absolutely a wonderful text. I've just been savoring this text all week long, just meditating on it. Just, it's rich, deep with meaning. Let me read through it. So I'll comment briefly as we work through it. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. False prophets People that say that they're speaking in behalf of God. Hey, let's just all be spiritual here. That's what he's saying. Hey, beware of that. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. He's going to give us kind of a clue here. More than a clue, really going to identify for us. How do we know the Spirit of God? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world." That's a great verse there. That's if, uh, if you come from my background, the kind of more charismatic and Pentecostal background, that was one of our 
favorite verses there. You guys familiar with that verse? It, we used to say it more like from the King James. Uh, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You, you know what he's saying here? Uh, That's pretty powerful, actually. That if you've put your faith in Jesus, his power and his presence, Emmanuel, God with us, we celebrate Christmas, his power and presence is greater than anything you'll ever face. What are you facing? What are you struggling with? His power is greater. Greater is he that is in in me than that which is in the world. What are you opposing? What's, what's opposing? By the way, in this world, you will have opposition. You will be criticized. You will be attacked. People will come against you, but greater is he, God's presence and power in you, in us, than, than anything we ever face. That's what he's saying there. That's good stuff. Man, I'll take that one. How many, how many would say, hey, I could use that one this morning? Show of hands. Okay, right on. That's for you, each one of you. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And he that is in the world. He says, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So he's making a distinction here between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Remember, this is John, eyewitness of Jesus. He starts the whole book by saying, hey, we were there. We touched him. We saw him. We experienced him. We encountered the living, resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our worlds were rocked. We've never been the same. That's what, this is the guy. He's writing it down for us. Pretty amazing. He's saying, hey, we'll, we'll help you to clear through the fog of our world so you can make a distinction between what's of God, what's not of God. He goes on these next words. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. How many remember the song that was based on those two verses? Show of hands. Okay, there's like three of us in here that remember that. So why don't you guys come up here and we'll sing it together for everybody else. <laughs> Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Okay, I won't go any further. Um, Anyway, it goes something like that. It's a pretty phenomenal song. And that's how I actually memorized those verses was with that song. And those are phenomenal verses that talk about the love of God when it invades your heart. Verses 9 and 10 are especially rich. Look what he says. In this, the love of God was manifest among us. In this... The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You are never more alive than when his love has gone from your head to your heart. It's not just a concept, but it becomes a reality. This is what he's talking about here. This is how God manifests his love among us. He sent his son. It goes back to where he said, how do we know what's the spirit of God? He says, uh, whoever confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And then he's elaborating a little bit more on it right here in verses 9 and 10. And then check this out, verse 10. In this is love. What is love? 
not that we loved God. It doesn't start with us. It never starts with us. God is the initiator. He pursues us. He's crazy in love with us. I can't fully grasp it. I don't understand it, but he is. The Bible's very clear about that. And so he takes the initiative and he pursues us with his love. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Everyone knows what that word means. (laughs) Propitiation. Don't you use that in your vocabulary all the time? We're going to come back to that word. That's a big word. That's an important word. That's a rich word for the propitiation for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, oh my goodness, if he so rocked your world with his love, nothing better than his love. There's nothing in this world that's better than his love. I I quoted that phrase in my prayer, and it's based on Psalm 63, 3. His love is better than life. There's nothing that compares to his love. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, here's here's what will happen. This is how you know. You've really encountered the love of God. We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Okay. Um, uh, in my prayer, I also quoted First uh, Timothy four one. You'll see under the heading on your notes, test the spirits. That's what we're going to do. And I quoted First Timothy four one, and this is what it says. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Those are doctrines of demons. So we need to talk a little bit about that. Now, let me ask you this. We have an adversary. What is he up to in our lives? You need to know this. You need to know what he's up to. And I can tell you this. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that he blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. He keeps them from seeing Jesus. Why is that? Why would he keep us from seeing Jesus? He also says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, and you've heard me quote these before, that Paul says that I am... I'm concerned about you because just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your, uh, your minds may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. I'm really frightened for you. So he's talking to believers there. So what, what, he, do, what he does to unbelievers, he blinds their minds so they cannot see the glory of Jesus. And then he leads astray the hearts of believers from their sincere and pure devotion. Sincere, authentic, real, true encounter with the living God. And... Sincere, pure means that he's at the center of your life. Everybody will put something at the center of their life, but what will happen is that we'll try to replace him with other things. It's called idolatry. It gets us into all kinds of trouble. But he says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the servant's cunning, that somehow your minds may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So that's what the enemy's up to. Why is that? Because it tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's in the beholding. We all worship. Everybody worships by nature. You worship something. There's something at the center of your life. There's something that you adore. Something that you're telling yourself that if I have that, if I accomplish this, if I achieve this, if I acquire that, I have meaning, I have purpose in my life. 
And we were made for Christ and him alone. And so when we, when we worship him and he's at the center of our life, he transforms our life. There's a wholeness in our life. And so it makes sense that the enemy would try to keep us from seeing the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, that our hearts would be smitten by who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so that's that. So we're going to work through this. Uh, and I'm going, to, I'm going to make a distinction between dogmatic assertions and defensible arguments. You need to know the difference between the two. Because when you watch the Learning Channel or PBS or History Channel, there will be times when people will make either defensible arguments or dogmatic assertions. And you need to know the difference when people get on there and these guys have degrees and say, well, Jesus was really, he was, uh, it wasn't a virgin birth and, and he was actually married. And they begin to make all of these assertions. You need to know, is that a defensible argument or a dogmatic assertion? This is what I want you to do. Turn to the people next to you and discuss that real quick. What is the major difference between the two? When someone makes a, a dogmatic assertion versus a defensible argument. And then we're going to go through our notes and, and very quickly unpack this first section. Real quick, do that. Discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Okay, do you guys think you have a pretty good handle on that? You need to because when you watch, it's part of your ability to discern. So you've got to know, oh, that's a defensible argument. Oh, that's a dogmatic assertion. And so let me walk you through this. This is where I'm going to start hurting your brain a bit. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to make a dogmatic assertion, which is common. Some, and there's so many more that we could add to this, which is some common dogmatic assertions in our society. It kind of flattens out Christians that aren't really well prepared for this and aren't really established in the truth and don't know what they believe and don't know why they believe what they believe. And then I'm going to respond. I'm going to refute it. And I'm going to just do it quickly. So you're going to have to think and maybe go back through this later. But then I'm going to respond with a defensible argument with each of these. Here's the first one. All major religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. How many have ever heard kind of something similar to that? Or it's just, yeah, okay, plenty of us. Here's uh, my uh, defensible argument. Religious toleration doesn't mean equal validity of truth. That's your fill in the blank. Religious toleration. So we are a very religiously tolerated society. We tolerate a lot of different... You can make up your own religions, okay? You You can come up with whatever. People have done that here. Just because... We have religious toleration. It doesn't mean equal validity to truth. And anyone who would make that claim isn't listening very well to what each religion teaches. Now, when you study the major cults and religions of our world today, this is what you're going to find. They, uh, they violate the law, of just the rational law of of non-contradiction, one of the laws of, of logic, and they contradict each other unbelievably. One of the major contradictions that we have is that all of them deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Most of the major ones that I've studied, they all deny, and that's, that's a problem for Christians because Jesus is God. We're going to see that in this text as we read through this. And so, but there's major contradiction. How could they all be basically teaching the same thing? You're just going to commit intellectual suicide? Yep, yep, yep. That's what people do. There's major contradiction in salvation and God's word and all these various things that are real, real important. So that can't be, that can't be the case. That's a dogmatic assertion, but the defensible argument is you need to do your homework. 
You need to study it out. You, you begin to do your homework and you begin to compare. You're going to see some major contradiction. Number two, next uh, dogmatic assertion. Each religion sees part of the spiritual truth, but none can see the whole truth. And oftentimes people that make that dogmatic assertion, they'll use a story like this. It's the story of the three blind men and the elephants. And the story goes something like this. The first blind man came to the elephant, and he begins to describe his experience with the elephant. It's long and flexible like a snake as he holds the elephant's trunk. And the second blind man says, no, 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 you're wrong. It's thick and round like a tree trunk as he feels the elephant's leg. And then the third one says, no, 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 you're both wrong. It's large and flat as he touches the elephant's side. So that's how people will use to to defend that argument. Now, here's my uh, defensible... uh, That's not an argument. That's the dogmatic assertion. But here's my defensible argument. How could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant? Here's your defensible argument. You are claiming to have a superior, that's your fill in the blank, a superior comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality. You just claim that none of the religions have. That's awfully arrogant of you, okay, to claim that. You guys tracking with me? Is your brain hurting yet? Okay, think about that. When someone makes that statement, they're claiming that they have more knowledge than all of the religions. They're just all part. They just all see part. They all work together. That's not true. That's not true. So what we're doing here is we're identifying here, you know, testing the spirits. Here's the next one, number three. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere and basically a good person. Oh, God bless America. That's very predominant in America. How many would agree with that? How many have heard something similar to that? Or Okay, yeah. That sounds so American. This is relativism. Relativism produces chaos. Imagine Phoenix with no absolute driving laws and everyone did as they pleased. So let me, let me, let me have you do something here. When you drive out of here, then uh, don't worry about that. You can drive on either side of the road. And when you come up to the light over here, red for you is green. You're going to get yourself killed. See, when you, relativism has this, well, it doesn't matter what you believe. Everybody has a part of the belief and you can kind of make it up as you go. You can't. You can't do that. But that's why we are finding ourselves getting into a deeper mess here in America because of our relativism. And, and, and there's such a contradiction because in some areas, there's no relativism. It's like absolutes. And then other areas, we just let people do whatever they want to do. It's crazy. And so here's my answer to that. Here's my defensible argument. I'm going to give you a verse. And here's your fill in the blank in that verse. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Seems right. Felt right. Feels good, do it. I let my heart lead the way. And that's what we hear people say. And the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked. And uh, says a lot of other things about our heart. And let me give you one of my favorite stories I, I share in the... I share in our game of life. And it's uh, when I was with Phoenix Fire, I was with them for a number of years and I was a medic. But before I became a medic, I was, uh, I was on Rescue 7 in the slope. You guys know where the slope is? Sunny slope? 
Sunny Slope. I was a sloper there for a little while. And uh, interesting uh, place because it's a conglomeration of a whole lot of different areas of town. And we could always tell when some uh, fr- uh, fresh batch of uh, heroin had come into the area because there was a, a, there would be a number of overdoses in that area. And the sad thing about, uh, about heroin and when you buy uh, street drugs is that obviously you're not buying it from a pharmacy. And so you could get a higher dose, a more potent dose. Than, uh, than what you're used to. And that's oftentimes that they, people would take that and shoot that. And then what heroin does is it suppresses your respiratory system. And uh, so we'd go on calls where people were without their respiratory system working. And so a lot of times their friends were doing CPR on them, whatever. But we had this miracle drug. It was called Narcan in our uh, drug box. You pop it pull it out in the syringe, you already have an IV started, you're already uh, helping ventilate this patient. You'd give this person, this person, it was a miracle drug, it would almost bring them right up, right, just like that. So we go on this call with these medics. This is, I was just uh, riding on a rescue. I wasn't a medic at the time. And so we go on this call, and there's a, sure enough, this person's overdosed. Their friends are freaking out. They're doing CPR on them. Um, this guy's crashing right in front of us. They start an IV on him, and uh, they push the drug, and the guy crashes more. He's not coming out because this is a miracle drug. Narcan, you, it, this person should start breathing on their own, should start coming, coming out of them. And oftentimes what we would do is not bring them up completely because a lot of times after we would uh, bring them up all the way, they'd rip the IV out and cuss us out because we had wrecked their high. And then we would say, no, we saved your life. But So sometimes we would keep them down and then get them to the hospital and then they would have to deal with them. Isn't that what you guys do? Okay. That's what we would do. But, uh, but anyway, this guy's crashing, and these guys are panicking. The medics are panicking only to realize as they're scrambling around that they did not give this patient Narcan. They gave this patient morphine. And uh, the vials of morphine and Narcan are very similar. You have to really look at them. So they popped the morphine, drew it up in the syringe, and basically morphine was just more of the same drug as an opioid derivative. And they almost killed this guy. And these guys are really, they were good guys. All of us were all good guys and and they were very sincere. But they were sincerely wrong. Truth matters. There's a way that seems right to a man that leads to destruction. By the way, it's been documented that there there have been medics that have killed people because of that, because of giving wrong drugs. I don't think any in Phoenix, but who knows? I was told that when I was going through my medic training and, and being aware of those things. So, so here it is. There's a way that seems right to a man that leads to death. C.S. Lewis put it this way, right and wrong are not a matter of mere taste and opinion any more than the multiplication table. Okay, so that kind of gets us, cuts us through the, the relativism that's so predominant in our world today. Here's the next one, okay. It is arrogant to insist your religion is right and to convert others to it. We shouldn't be out there converting people. Here's, uh, that's a dogmatic assertion. Here's my defensible argument. Yet, by making that statement, it's the very thing that you are doing. That's your fill in the blank. It is no more arrogant to claim that one religion is right than to claim that all are equally right, the claim that all religions are equally right is an exclusive truth claim that is expressed also to convert others to it. Um, 
everyone, if you really look deep in your own heart and the hearts of people around us in, in American society and throughout the world, everyone has an exclusive truth claim. Everyone adheres to ex- exclusive truth claims. Um, part, I mean, part of this whole teaching series is to get you to begin to evaluate uh, your, your faith. Everybody has faith. You can't live without some sort of faith. You put your faith, your trust, your love, your support into something or someone. If it's not Jesus, it'll be something else. You were created to put your faith in God. And when you don't, you will serve another God. Something else will be your God. All I'm doing and all I'm asking you to do is to evaluate that. Because too often, this is what people do. People will... Seek justification and validation for the Christian faith more so than their own faith, their alternate belief system, whatever that might be. Most people have not given serious thought to their own personal belief system, and yet everyone has one. Even the person that says, I don't believe in God, that's a belief system. You're counting on the fact that there is no God and you'll never stand before any judge, and that when you die, you will go off into nothing. That's a faith system. And all I'm saying is that it takes as much, it takes, it, it, the, the, the faith, the Christian faith is not a blind leap into some dark chasm, but it's a step into the light. It's rational and it's relational. It's evidential, it's historical, it's factual. And the more you roll up your sleeves and, and not become intellectually lazy, you realize that there are, there's enough evidence giving validity to Christianity to tilt the scale beyond a reasonable doubt. You're going to always have doubts, but beyond a reasonable doubt that you're willing to to give him your life. You're willing to say, oh my goodness, I had no idea. And you say, wow, there's plenty of evidence. Now you do have a belief system. Everyone does. I'm just challenging it. And everybody believes their own beliefs. If people were more like me, this world would be a much better place. Moralists do that. Moralists, extreme moralists, but also secularists do the same thing. If people were just as enlightened as we are and as as accepting as we are. And they can be just as condescending and self-righteous and holier than thou as moralists are. And, um, And so that's why it's important to really understand the Christian faith. Here's the next one on uh, number five. Your religious beliefs should be a private affair never brought into the public uh, domain or discourse. Okay, let's talk about religion before I give you the fill in the blank. What is religion? It is a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about. You know, why are we here? What's the purpose of life? And everybody in their heart and mind have defined that. Whether you want to admit it or not, you're making life about something. You know you're going to go somewhere. You're putting your hope in someone or something. And so this really, religion is about ultimate values. And pragmatists would say that we should leave our deeper worldviews behind and find consensus about what works. You know, leave your religious beliefs behind. And let's work together on the community so we can make society a better place. But our view of what works is determined by what we think people are here for. Otherwise, they're not ultimate values. You can't say, these are my ultimate values, and then not let them impact your life and then impact how you would make decisions about your life and everybody else's life. You can't do that because these are ultimate values. Otherwise, they're not ultimate values. You're just, you're, you've got hypocrisy in your life. You're saying one thing, oh, I'm a believer, and yet you're doing something else with your life and living your life however you want to live. It doesn't make sense. 
Here's my defensible argument. When you come into the public square, it is impossible to leave your convictions about ultimate values behind. You can't do that. Otherwise, they're not ultimate values. I mean, take, for instance, just uh, divorce laws. Let's say that the state representatives put you on a committee to begin to look at our divorce laws and see how we need to establish our divorce laws here in our community. If you believe the purpose of marriage, now this is ultimate values, if you believe the purpose of marriage is for your personal happiness, in other words, you have more, which is, which is very common in our society today. It's very individualistic. It's about your personal happiness. Needs are more important than, than the relationship or the family or the community. What will happen if you have that attitude, you will seek to, as we are seeing, redefine marriage based on your own feelings, what's, what you feel is best, and you will make divorce laws that are easy. But if you believe the purpose of marriage is covenant love, family-oriented, relationship is more important than the personal needs, and you believe that it's a fundamental building block for a healthy society, then you'll define marriage according to God's divine design and make divorce laws that are hard. I mean, you can't get away from these ultimate values infiltrating your life and, and making a difference in how you make decisions in your life. Okay, here's the next one, number six. We've got to keep rolling here. What about those who have never heard about Jesus? These people say, well, Jesus is the only way, but yeah, but aren't the, there's people who never heard about Jesus. What about them? Okay. Um, it's too bad, really. They just... They're just lost, and there's no hope for them. Okay, I'm kidding. Okay. That wasn't very funny, was it? Pastor Ray, that wasn't very funny at all. Here's the answer to that. The Bible, the Bible gives us an answer. And I've had people actually defect from the faith based on that, just kind of say, forget that. Well, what about all these people? What about you? You've heard about Jesus. Here, here's, here's the Bible answer. And the Bible gets into even more answers. Here's the deal. Here's the answer. Everyone has the revelation of creation. I would encourage you to read this, Romans 1, 20, 22. Conscience, Romans two fifteen. So everyone has the revelation of creation and conscience. How do we know there's a God? He's revealed himself to us through creation, conscience, and have been placed. You didn't get to choose where you were going to be born, but have been placed where they might reach out to him, Acts 17, 26 through 27. Here's your fill in the blank. God is thoroughly Fair. Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So, okay. So when you stand before God, when we get to heaven, this is what will be on everybody's heart and mind. One of the things is that, wow, he is thoroughly fair. He is just in all that he does. That's a fact. The Bible is very clear about that. So maybe you, you know, certainly you should have some concern for folks that haven't heard so that maybe we need to get out there and tell them, but what about you? What about you and are you living for him? Okay, here's the last one. Number seven, one of the main barriers to world peace is religion and especially the major traditional religions with their exclusive claim to superiority. Here's my defensible argument. I agree. I agree, but... As I stated, everybody has a set of exclusive beliefs. Now, let me, let me expand on this just a tad. Here's what creates the pride and the superiority attitude and the condescension because, 
Because here's, here's what happens oftentimes. Any religion that claims to its followers that they have the truth and are saved by performing that truth will naturally lead for them to feel superior to those with differing beliefs, lead them to separate from those who are less devoted and pure, lead them to stereotype and caricature other religious groups, and even eventually lead to marginalizing others and even active oppression, abuse, and, or violence against them. It's, it's natural for groups to do that because, hey, I've done, I've hit the punch list, I'm better than you. It, it creates that superiority. But you're going to find, if you really explore Christianity, Christianity doesn't leave you with, with pride and arrogance. It leaves you with something else. And, and that brings us to something that's really important. In fact, let me, let me finish this statement by giving you the fill-in-the-blank. I happen to believe, and we're going to kind of unpack this in the next section here. Here's the real question. Because every, everybody has a set of exclusive beliefs. Here's the question. Which set of exclusive beliefs will turn you into a peace-loving, there's your fill-in-the-blank, peace-loving, reconciling, inclusive person? I happen to believe Christianity will, uh, beyond anything. Um, Let me prove that to you. Let me give you a defensible argument for that. But before we do that, um, here's what I'm going to ask you. And you've got to get this. If you're a believer, you you should have already known this, but if you don't, you're going to learn it today. What's the major difference when you compare the major cults and religions of our world today compared to Christianity? What's the major difference between the two? There's a number of things, but there's one that is stunning. It is stunning. In fact, C.S. Lewis even said this. He was the reluctant convert. He said, I was a reluctant convert, but when I, when I saw this, I saw that the gospel was simply irresistible. And, and, and this is what, really, when I begin to explore Christianity and compare it to the major religions and cults of our world today, this is what captured me. This is why I use the language sometimes, our heart's smitten. It's, my heart is smitten by the, by the language and who, who Jesus is. And, and so go ahead, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. What's the major difference between the two? See if you can come up with some answers real quick. Okay, you guys ready? I'm going to take a little bit longer minute there, man. I gave myself a brain freeze sucking down that. Uh... Some of you, I think you had a brain freeze just from what I've been talking about here. But... Uh... Anybody, you, you guys enjoy brain freezes? They're just really wonderful. Um, woo! Gave me that rush headache. Okay, here's the deal. Here's the major difference. Every other major cult and religion is a works righteousness. A code of ethics. If you do these things, you can achieve, you can reach. It's a, it's a reaching to a finite man trying to reach up to an infinite God. But the gospel is grace. It's an infinite God. It's an infinite God reaching down and relating to us finite men and women. It's stunning. Oh my goodness, it's crazy. Now let me give you three distinctives of that. It's in this text. So by this, you know the Spirit of God. He, he unpacks it for us. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Number one, God came into the world. So I'm going to give you the origin, the origin of our salvation, the purpose, and then the method. 
the origin is that God came into the world. Verse 2, remember what we read, Jesus Christ has come. Notice it didn't say that he was born, though he was. This tells us that he was somewhere before he came into this world. This is in... This is an an implicit claim that is explicit elsewhere in Scripture. The implicit claim is that he's God. This This is God, the deity of Jesus Christ. In every other religion, its founders are only human. But in Christianity, God came into the world. The invisible God became visible. How do we know there's a God? Well, uh, revelation of creation, conscience, commandments, this book. But Christ, yes, he showed up here. He walked this earth. God. That's crazy. No other religion says that. The invisible God became visible. Walk this planet Earth. It's historical. It's evidential. It's factual. No one can dispute that. It's amazing. The invisible God became visible. Uh, Hey, uh, by the way, you need to know, JWs, the Jehovah Witnesses, they use their own Bible... They've jacked up their own Bible, yes, and it's a New World Translation, and because they deny the deity of Jesus. So when someone wants to offer you a New World Translation, say, no, thank you. You've got to know that. They deny the deity of Jesus. They've messed with the words and the phrases, and yet when you study through the Scripture, you've got, you got John chapter 1, Colossians 1, you've got Hebrews 1, Revelation 1, talks about the deity of Jesus Christ, God coming to this earth. So it's, it's pretty obvious. If you, just, if you don't commit intellectual suicide, you roll up your sleeves and you just say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this for what it is. I want to see what is this saying, what is this speaking. And then, and then here's the next one, is that God showed up, number two, to transform the world. So the first one, his origin. The second one is his purpose. He says in verse two, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, in the flesh. What does that mean? In the flesh. Here's what's, here's what's crazy. Every other religion sends advisors. They give good advice on what you must do to be right with God. Christianity sent not an advisor, but a savior to bring to you and I good news of what he has done to make us right with God, to transform our lives, to transform this world. He came in the flesh. Came across a story a number of years ago I found really quite interesting. It's uh, in 1964, there was a shocking murder in New York City. A 28-year-old woman, Kitty Geneves, coming home late after night, uh, after her night shift, was attacked on the block in front of her apartment. The attackers stabbed her, and she cried, My God, he stabbed me. Please help me. In apartments all around, lights went on and windows opened and people looked down. And when the attacker saw that, he withdrew. But it's documented that 38 people looked down who saw and heard but didn't come down, didn't get involved. In fact, 
out of 38 people, none even called the police. They didn't want to get involved. Don't want to get involved. When the attacker who had withdrawn realized after about five minutes that no one was coming down to get involved, he went back and found, her, found where the woman had crawled around uh, to the back alley and robbed her of $49 and killed her. The Bible tells us that God has heard our cries. Throughout the scripture, it talks about God hearing our cries, hearing our cries. He hears our cries. But he didn't just look down. He came down. He makes himself vulnerable, and not just at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. We talked about it a little bit last, last weekend. You hear us talk about it all the time. God made this world a perfect home, but we ran from God, broke his heart, broke this world, but in his love, he came down, not as a judge, but as a rescuer. He didn't just look down and say, oh, you guys are on your own. He came down and got involved. Now, the next couple of weeks, we're going to deal with some really tough topics, as if this isn't a tough topic. This is pretty tough, but it's going to get tougher the next couple of weeks. We're going, to deal with, we're going to deal with suffering. Okay, so what about suffering? Where's God and my suffering? And then the next week after that, we're going to talk about, about hell. But let me just give you just a, uh, just a little bit of this idea of suffering just kind of give you a taste of it. God so loved us and hates suffering that he was willing to come down and get involved in it. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it was worthwhile to bring us back close to him. Here's what's amazing, is that the all-powerful hands of the maker who put and created the heavens and the earth, the hands of the maker became the nail-pierced hands of the Savior. So, so here's, it tells us a number of things, but here's a couple things. Whatever you've been through, whatever you're going through, he's been through and more. And he was able to conquer it. And he can come alongside of us and help us in our time of need. You see, he not only relates to us and understands our pain, but he has provided for this, this bridge across the chasm that separated us from this eternal God so that we can now have God in our lives. Emmanuel is what we celebrate around Christmas time. What does that mean? God with us. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That's amazing. He came down and got involved in our lives. And he can be involved in your life this morning if you will open your heart to him. He indwells us by his Holy Spirit. He empowers us and enables us. And he promises us. And it's interesting that Jesus... The Son of God had a, had a body, and then when he resurrected, he had a brand new body, telling us that we will all have brand new bodies. There's a new heavens and earth coming. He gives us that hope. So, so he relates to us, and then he redeems us and brings us in, in union with the Father, and then he promises us, one of these days, I'm going to restore the heavens and the earth, and I'm going to take care of all of that. And here's the coolest thing about it. You can't earn that. It's just all by faith in Jesus Christ. And you can't ruin it. 
There's nothing you can do to wreck it. If you put your faith in Him, you can have His presence. You can have His peace. You have the security of all that the gospel proclaims concerning us. It's outrageous. It's amazing. To transform the world, there's... uh, When you look at the life of Jesus, when he came into the world and he worked miracles, it was not magic tricks designed to impress and coerce. Jesus healed the sick, fed the hungry, raised the dead. He was a friend of sinners, not as an interruption of the natural order, but but to be a restoration of the natural order. Jesus' miracles weren't just proof of his power to challenge our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. And that's why he says in verse 12 in our text, it's why that we are to, to recreate, give people a taste, of, a foretaste of heaven, that they might have a taste for heaven. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so, so God came into the world to transform the world. So you got origin, purpose, and then you got the method. Beginning with us by his grace, by his grace. So, so all other religions are spelled D-O. The good are in, the bad are out. You've got to meet the standards. Let me just run through some of those standards. Uh, Buddhism, Eightfold Path, Islam, Five Pillars, Judaism, Ten Commandments, Hinduism, reincarnate reincarnate until you get it right. Mormonism, exalted to godhood by specific works. Scientology, work with your auditor to achieve a state of clear. Jehovah Witnesses, baptized as a Jehovah Witness and door-to-door work. It's all works righteousness. The gospel is about God's grace. It's by God's grace. Christianity is spelled done. Done. The humble are in, the proud are out. All you need is need you recognize your need for him, you give him your life. Okay, okay, I know, I know you guys have been sitting on the edge of your seat for the definition of propitiation. Okay, you guys ready for it? Here's the definition for propitiation. Let me reread it. He says in verse, in, uh, verse 10, he says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Here it is. Here's propitiation. Christ turned away, this is what it means, Christ turned away the righteous anger of God and satisfied the demands of his justice on our behalf. See, what is Christ is ours, and what is ours became Christ on the cross. All of our sin, for he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So so when I put my faith in Jesus, see, he takes my sin... And he gives me his righteousness, and I immediately stand before God, and God says to me, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen, and there's nothing you can do to wreck that. And the more you realize that, the more it begins to transform your life. If you're struggling in the whole sanctifying process, the wholeness, you know, of kind of messing around with a lot of the things of this world, it's because you need to get back to to your identity in Christ and your justification in him. And so that's why I put this, Romans 5, Romans 5, 8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For, for God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were, verse 10, for if while we were his enemies, if while we were his enemies, we, we didn't want to have anything to do with him. While we were his enemies, he died for us. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more. 
Now that we are reconciled, we're as kids, shall we be saved in this life? Oh, my goodness. If you could understand that, it's revolutionary to your life when you understand the grace of God, that while we were his enemies, he died for us, how much more now that we are his children. So we went from being objects of his wrath and enemies of God to being his children, his beloved children. And that happened not by what we do in our performance, but based on what Christ has done for us as we put our faith in him and it revolutionizes our life. And because we didn't earn that, there's no pride and arrogance, there's humility, but there's confidence Humility, yeah, I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. But I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. So it creates that humble confidence in us that brings that balance. So here's my argument. The gospel is the only exclusive belief that will turn you into a peace-loving, reconciling, inclusive person because at the very heart of, of a Christian's view of reality is a man, Christ Jesus, who died for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness. So... We're going to take communion this morning, and communion is a very sacred time for those of us that are believers because, in fact, this is what you're going to do. There will be three stations here this morning during the the music, while the music is playing, and you can come up and find one of these stations. We'll ask you to take the bread, which represents his broken body, and just kind of dip the end of it in the cup, which represents his shed blood for us. And, And you can do that if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, you can become one this morning by putting your faith in the Jesus that we're talking about. Uh, Communion is a means of grace. It's an opportunity to to be recharged. And so Ryan's going to lead us in this song during this time. And while he's singing this song, I would ask you to come forward and uh, take communion and then feel free to go back to your seat. You can reflect or you can exit, but please do that quietly. But listen to this song that I think that captures this amazing love by Chris Tomlin. It says this, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. That's the gospel message. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Now listen to the kind of the chorus. That's one of the verses there. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, there's no other religion that would say that. My king would die for me. I mean, it's normal for kings and kingdoms to ask the subjects to die for the king and the kingdom, but never for a king, King Jesus, to come and die for us and to give us the fullness of life that he offers us. Amazing love. I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you. In all I do, I honor you. God, we love you. We are amazed by grace. Grace is really amazing. It's simply irresistible. And God, we realize that it's in grace and all that we have received. We, we received so much, all the resources we'll ever need by grace. It wasn't anything we could earn. We just enter into it by faith. We received it. Not by our performance, but by the performance of Jesus. And God, I pray this morning as we take communion that that would not just be an objective truth, but may it be very subjective, deep within our heart. May that concept go deep within our heart. May it be a reality. May our hearts be ravished by your amazing love. We pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.